Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Scott Wurzbacher, and today we're going to experience both the highs and the lows of adventure with a returning guest to the show. Adam Herzog from Asheville, North Carolina is back with us today, and you might remember him from episode 35 when he shared his experiences and the flow states that accompanied them during his lifetime of kayaking class five whitewater. It was one of my favorite episodes packed full of wisdom and going with the flow. If you haven't heard the first part of Adam's story as an elite whitewater kayaker, I highly recommend episode 35. That conversation was a little over a year ago. And since then, Adam has experienced the extreme highs and lows of adventurous risk-taking. After successfully achieving a lifetime goal to navigate the Grand Canyon of kayaking last year, Adam returned to his home in Asheville and shortly thereafter suffered an injury after falling 45 feet from an indoor climbing wall. This is a story about learning from our mistakes and the power of resilience. And I'm so excited to have Adam back here to share his story with us. Adam, welcome back to the campfire. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, so great to be back here with you and uh, kind of a fun thing. I happened to be in Asheville a couple of weeks ago, so got to got to hang out with you face to face, which was super cool. Yeah, it was, it was a good time. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming that some people might be listening to this and uh, have not heard uh, episode 35. And as I said in the intro, I highly recommend going back and listening to it. But I just kind of want to recap a little bit of, of your journey up to episode 35. And so if you don't mind, just a look of a background of, of, of who you are and uh, your sort of journey of whitewater kayaking. I'm Adam Herzog. I live in Asheville, as you said, and I've been whitewater kayaking since I was 12 years old. Uh, grew up in Western North Carolina, spent most of my life here. Uh, whitewater kayaking has really been the kind of driving force of my life. And I've focused primarily for the last probably 25 years on difficult and dangerous whitewater, class five whitewater, which consists of, you know, paddling off big waterfalls and, and through uh, difficult rapids. And it's a journey that's taken me to some pretty cool places. And, uh, and yeah, really, it's what I'm all about. Yes. And also, you are uh, professionally a trauma nurse and an EMT. Yeah, I've been a paramedic for 22 years. I nursed for about 15 years. I worked for the trauma department at Mission Hospital in Asheville as a trauma nurse lead on a specialized team of highly trained uh, nurses that all we do is trauma care. So we provide the resuscitation and initial assessment for the acute trauma patient when they roll in the ER doors and then ongoing care throughout the hospitalization. Yeah. So uh, in prep for our conversation today, I actually went back and listened, re-listened to episode 35 again myself. It was so good. I mean, it was just packed full. Uh, the title of it was Going With The Flow on class five whitewater. And uh, we really got into a lot of uh, the metaphor of, of paddling 
uh, whitewater and sort of that feeling of just kind of getting into a flow state and just, you know, really losing yourself and just kind of finding yourself in that, in the, in that flow of water. And, uh, there really was just so much wisdom, not just about whitewater kayaking, but also just some metaphors of life as well. And, um, man, I just, you know, that experience of flow state, and maybe we'll touch on it again a little bit more, but, um, so since that episode, you've had some, some big things. And, uh, when we spoke, you were getting ready to go to the Stikeen. Did I pronounce that right? Stikeen. Yep. The Stikeen. And so can tell us a little bit about that journey that you were preparing for and, uh, and tell us about the Grand Canyon of kayaking. Uh, I, I would say it's probably more like the Mount Everest of kayaking. Um, Mount Everest of kayaking, even yeah. better. So the Stikine River is in northwestern British Columbia, and it's uh, way out at the end of the road. It's about a thousand miles north of Vancouver, and it's widely regarded within the you know elite paddling circles as kind of the crown jewel of expedition kayaking. Essentially, you're, you're backpacking out of your kayak, so you're shoving, you know, food and camping gear for several days in the back of the boat, which makes the boat obviously super heavy. Um, and then paddling a, a long stretch of river, camping out of the boat as you go along. And the Stikine is, you know, there's a sixth class scale for whitewater. Class one is just moving water, and class six is the upper limit or beyond the upper limit of navigability. And the Stikine is class five and five plus whitewater for about 60 miles. It's in a thousand foot deep slot canyon. So the walls in many places drop straight down to the river. So there's a lot of spots where it's difficult or impossible to get out of the boat. So once you commit to it, the only way out is downstream. Um, I first heard about it when I was probably 13 years old and you know, I read about it in a, there was a Patagonia catalog with an essay called Drowning, and uh, it was written by Bob McDougall, who was a well-regarded expedition kayaker back in the 90s. And he uh, was ripped out of his boat in the first rapid and had to free solo up like a 300-foot, you know, vertical wall, crumbling cliff. Uh, he survived. I think he quit paddling after that. And ever since I was 13, I've been thinking about it. Yeah. So what's that like? For, I mean, this is this was a lifelong goal for you that you've been training for. And, and and again, like to go back to episode 35, like so much of that episode was about how you um, you really developed the fundamentals and how like you grew in your skill level to a place to where like class five was just like naturally within really within your comfort zone, something that's just like so unbelievable to other people. But your ability to just get into class five and just do it. But what was that like to be able to accomplish that lifetime goal of the Stikine? I mean, it was overwhelming. You know, when we got to the takeout, I was certainly choking back tears. It had just been such a long time coming. And so I spent, you know, really five years preparing for it. And the preparation included, you know, everything from breath work and, you know, breath hold training. So I could hold my breath for over three minutes when I went up there to you know, weightlifting and kind of traditional fitness, obviously tons of kayaking. I was paddling you know, a couple hundred days a year as much as I could on class five. So it was kind of a multi-year project to really pull it off. And I, you know, planned the trip several times. It's kind of like mountaineering in that you, know, you need the conditions to line up and the conditions mean, you know, the correct water level, the right crew, you gotta have the time to do it. And there's a lot of variability in those conditions. So I 
probably planned the trip fairly extensively three times before we finally pulled the trigger and went up there in 2022. Yeah. And um, so I, I just want to repeat, cause it's kind of, this is kind of blow your mind, like class five white water for 60 miles. Yep. Yep. It's, and it's big water. So it's about 10 to 15,000 cubic feet per second, which just means, you know, you're standing at one point and X number of cubic feet pass by you in a, in a given second. Uh, just for like your Charlotte listeners, uh, for something to comparison, I think the Whitewater Center probably has, you know, less than a thousand cubic feet per second in both channels combined. Um, so that kind of gives you some, some perspective. And then the canyon walls are really tight and narrow. So the, the, the water gets kind of squeezed in between these canyon walls and has almost like a fire hose effect. So the velocity of the whitewater is quite intense. It kicks up, you know, 10 to 15 foot waves and giant holes and yeah, it's rowdy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, man, I just, how long did it take to, to complete the entire 60 miles? We were in BC for two weeks. I went there with a good friend. We, needed a crew to link up with and we were able to do that early in our trip so we paddled in southern british columbia and interior british columbia for i don't know eight or nine days kind of getting used to the type of white water the environment and mm -hmm. the, the group and then we six of us went up to the stikine uh, and we paddled it over just two days we had a couple guys who had done it before which made it go a little quicker for sure yeah. So 60, 60 miles over two days through class. Yeah. I mean, that had to have just been intense, an intense two days. It was an intense couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this, to me, it feels like a stupid question. It's probably not to you, but like class five whitewater 60, I mean, at some point you had to get out right to camp. Like you, you're overnight there. Like, yeah, there's, like, there's some spots, a couple of places where the river bed opens up and the Canyon walls recede briefly. So there's, uh, traditionally two two camp spots in the gorge there's not much flat ground but there's two kind of established spots uh, people go up there almost every year you know it sees a few runs and uh, we did traditionally it was done in three days and then you know progression of the sport just kind of it's it's more realistic to do it in two days now than it was 30 years ago yeah. So um, when I was with you in Asheville, you showed me a picture of you in the Stikine and it's, I mean, it's epic. I'll, uh, we'll put up, we'll put the picture up in, uh, in the show notes for listeners this year. I, you know, first of all, congratulations. I mean, this is a lifetime goal. You've really been training for it your whole life. And I feel like in episode 35, you, you made a statement that you were, you exist to paddle whitewater. Um, and it's been your, it's been your lifetime um goal and passion and uh so you know to have a culmination of being able to do this 60 mile journey in class five on the stikine it's pretty amazing um but the title of today's podcast is the highs and the lows and so since we spoke to you a year ago you've had uh, a couple of big things um the stikine being a, a major lifetime high um but then when you got back something something on the low side happened can you tell us what happened yeah, on December 14th, uh, 22, I was climbing at the, the gym on an auto belay device. And if anyone's not familiar, auto belay is just a machine that allows you to climb without a belayer. So you um, have a rope that's tethered from the ceiling to the floor, clip it to your climbing harness, you climb up the wall, you let go, and you're just gently lowered to the ground. And uh, 
hard to believe, but I had just like basically the brain fart from hell and didn't clip in at all without realizing it. I stepped over the, the rope and um, climbed up about 45 feet and let go. And I fell, you know, to the ground. Man, I remember um, speaking to you, I think in, in January, like not too long after it had happened. And yeah, I mean, first of all, this like happy to be on this call with you talking. Oh, for right sure. Now. Yeah, I feel very fortunate to be yeah. alive. Yeah. So can you talk about some of the injuries that you suffered? Because pretty miraculous that that uh, we are sitting here talking right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had about 15 broken bones total. Um, I fractured my skull. Broke my back in a bunch of places. See, I had pulmonary contusions, which is bruising in the lungs. It's pretty severe. Broke all four extremities. So left wrist, um, right elbow, proximal radius, uh, left fibula, and I obliterated my right ankle. And then I had a really bad concussion. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. Did you know that the members of my real estate team, W Realty Group, are listening to their own voices that call to adventure by setting big goals? Some of those goals include planning trips to Bali and the Kingdom of Bhutan, buying investment homes and running the Chicago Marathon. At W Realty Group, we support and encourage these big goals and want to help turn them into reality. We're currently looking to add new members to the team. If you know a great real estate agent in the Charlotte, North Carolina area that would benefit from being part of our team, please send a text, an email, or give me a call. And know that when you support W Realty Group, you're also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. So Adam, as a trauma nurse and as a paramedic, you know, you're on the other side of it as a patient. What, what was the initial hospitalization like? Um, just in terms of, you know, I guess that, that those immediate first couple of days, um, yeah. and, and also, you know, have you being on the other side of what you do for a living? It was surreal. I, I don't remember falling and I don't remember, you know, my EMS transport or my initial emergency room uh, visit. Uh, the team that I work on was waiting for me. Um, I think it was really you know, traumatic for them as well, but they, they put me on a ventilator right away for pain management and just to, you know, facilitate, uh, CAT scans and imaging. I was really confused. So it would have been very difficult to get me to hold still. So they, they put me down, put me on a ventilator and uh, I spent, I guess about 24 hours on the ventilator, had a couple surgeries. I really don't remember any of that. I just woke up, uh, with the endotracheal tube down my throat as they were trying to, you know, get me out of the sedation. Um, so I remember it's kind of the first thing I remember was waking up intubated and it was really horrific. It's always been a nightmare for any healthcare provider, I think, to, to be on the other side. And uh, after that kind of you know, my memory slowly becomes more clear and lucid. And the next thing I remember was kind of waking up surrounded by a room full of people who I work with, which was, again, kind of a nightmare, essentially naked in a bed, you know, not sure how I got there or what had happened. It was very confusing. 
Uh, it took a long time for the concussion to clear. So I was, you know, for the first couple of days, there was just a lot of, I think, repetitive questions and, and, you know, confusion about what exactly had happened. What was that like when you first sort of came to, like, what was that like? Uh, it was just, um, I don't know. It was uh, it's just horrific, really. You know, it's like, how did I get here? What happened? You know, I just, I, I, and I, I couldn't really get my head around when they were explaining to me what had happened. It just didn't seem possible that I would have made such a stupid mistake. Um, so I was feeling really mortified as well by the fact that I had made such a, you know, silly error. Um, mm -hmm. I've always been like pretty hard on my peers in terms of decision-making and using good judgment. And so it was kind of the tables that turned and I was the one making the bad decision. So that was, that was a whole nother kind of humbling concept. Yeah. And, and I just have to tell you of like, the your humility and just in sharing your story is is really like first of all i just really appreciate it but it's just really inspiring because you know you, there's a lesson to be learned here and and you've written uh some really beautiful stuff to help other people kind of avoid this similar thing from happening and I, we're going to get into some of that because i really appreciate some of that wisdom um can you kind of talk us through maybe the next couple of weeks of recovery and what that was like for you yeah, I spent, so I spent really only about 24, 36 hours in the intensive care unit. They were able to get me off the ventilator pretty quickly. I really didn't, other than the, you know, the brain injury and the um, pulmonary contusions, I didn't have internal organ damage that required surgery. And so really, I just had a bunch of broken bones. And, um, you know, I got shipped down to the, like, regular orthopedic floor to, wait for some of the swelling to go down so they could do some more surgeries. And the first, you know, the first, I don't know, probably five to seven days was really just laying in bed uh, in a whole lot of pain. You know, the pain was, I mean, I've had, you know, multiple isolated orthopedic injuries before, but this was just so far beyond anything I had experienced that completely recalibrated pain for me. So there was a lot of just, you know, boredom sitting around in pain waiting. Um, luckily I had a huge support network between the kayaking community, my family and the um, healthcare community. I had lots of visitors bringing me food and, you know, providing what support they could to my family. It was really um, special. Um, but basically, yeah, I sat around waiting for, you know, the inflammatory stuff to die down and then eventually started doing some very light PT, which initially consisted of just moving from the bed to a recliner and sit in the recliner as long as I could. And eventually, you know, sort of standing up. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like in those first couple of weeks, like what, what you were being told in terms of like what recovery was going to look like. Yeah. Well, the first thing I was told was that I was going to go sit in a nursing home for three months because mm -hmm. typically PT and OT can't, if you've got four non-weight bearing extremities, they, there's not a whole lot they can do with you. Mm -hmm. So they can do some range of motion stuff, but if you can't bear weight, you can't really do PT. You know, you can't do real PT. And so the general plan or prognosis would be go to a nursing home for three months and lay in bed and wait for the bones to heal. And then when the bones heal, 
go to a inpatient physical therapy hospital and start doing PT inpatient for anywhere from, you know, a couple of weeks to a couple of months. So I was looking at, you know, anywhere from four to six months of not being home. And that was what I was told to expect. Wow. I am, I'm also curious, I don't know if you've ever heard, and I don't know if I'm going to get them right, but the, the, the five stages of loss or the five stages of grief where you mm-hmm. go through, like, I think it's denial. I may get the order wrong, but denial, anger, bargaining, disappointment, and acceptance. Mm-hmm. I think I might've got those out of order, but I know I denial, right. denial comes first. I'm curious, like if you have found yourself going through those phases. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think everyone, you know, you can't put people in a, in a box. So I don't think that everyone grieves in a prescribed way like that. But yeah, I think there's been a little bit of all of those elements. I mean, I was certainly angry with myself, you know, um, the denial thing, I think probably initially, I just w- could not believe that that actually happened. So there's probably some of that. Um, yeah, being, you know, I, when I came home, I was in my basement for, I don't know, six weeks, I couldn't go upstairs, I was in a wheelchair. So yeah, that was pretty depressing. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, I've experienced a little bit of all those things, I guess. Yeah. Man, it's hard, but but uh, but Adam is a is a fighter, and uh, you know one thing that I thought was really interesting. You and I were chatting in Asheville, and um, you shared with me because you know obviously you were training for the Stikine your whole life, but you really were really dialed in for five years. You talked about doing breath work training. You talked about like this fitness, like this this level of fitness. When this accident happened, you were in really good shape. I was. And one of the things that we talked about was how your condition at the time, and I like, I guess maybe you hadn't thought about it for a little while, but really, you know, impacted your ability to sustain this injury and survive. And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, everybody was telling me that when I was convalescing, you know, yeah, yeah, you'd be, you know, anybody else would be dead or you, there's no way you would be in such, you know, be recovery so quickly if you were in such good shape initially. And I, it sounded good, but I wasn't really, I didn't have anything concrete to kind of back that up. And then I talked to one of the um, ICU doctors and he was, he took care of me while I was in the hospital. And he was saying he had been very concerned about my pulmonary contusions. As I said, they're bruising in the lungs, but you know, in and of themselves, they'll heal. But for a lot of folks, they lead to ARDS, which is adult respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, it's kind of like a really severe type of pneumonia where your alveoli collapse and you have severe atelectasis. And, and a lot of people die from it. It can turn into sepsis and multi-organ dysfunction and, and lead to death. There's a, a pretty clear metric we use called an incentive spirometer. It's to help keep the alveoli inflated. Um, and so you, you inhale on this little piece of tubing and, you know, for someone my size, we'd really like to see, it would be pretty happy with 1500 milliliters. But when I woke up and right after I got extubated, I was pulling, you know, 3000 milliliters on the incident spirometer. So I think that's a pretty objective measure of lung capacity and, and kind of where I was at, you know, even with these really severe pulmonary contusions, I was two or three times as high on my IS as you would expect to see. So I think that probably did indicate that my baseline fitness helped me survive. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's just a life lesson in that, another life lesson from Adam. <laughs> but, you know, this this idea that, like, you know, keeping ourselves in top physical condition, it not only, you know, it's, it's not just so that we can avoid injury, but it's also so that if something unexpected like this happens, like, the better shape we're in, the better, the more resilient we are. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah you really just, never know what you're training for. I guess it's the, I thought I was training for the stachine, but the stachine went... I mean, it was challenging for sure, but there was never a moment where I was like, felt like I was fighting for my life on the stakeen. Yeah. I was prepared for that, but it didn't happen. Um, and then it did happen in the climbing show of all places. Yeah. So I guess that's a good transition. Like, do you feel a sense of irony that you, you know, went and did this epic 60 mile class five rapid successfully, no injuries. And then you come back and, you know, where you get hurt is in a climbing gym. Of course, there are many layers of irony in this whole thing. And, you know, from being the trauma nurse turned trauma patient to the class five kayaker who gets hurt in the gym, uh, it was uh, thick with irony. Yeah. So again, you wrote, um, and I, we'll put a link, you, 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 uh, you wrote a really great article to kind of help other people. And, and in that article, you talked about six... Um, I, I think you called them mistakes that you made that came together to create this sort of perfect storm of, of what happened the day of the accident. And I just wondered um, if you could walk us through those and yeah. sort of lessons that um, people might take away from this. Sure. The first one is uh, hubris. That's, um, you know, arrogance. But this as a class five kayaker and having spent 30 years in austere river environments, I just really didn't think that the gym could hurt me. And uh, that is just a, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a conscious thought. It was more of a subconscious thought, but I think it was, you know, I'm the big, bad class five kayaker and the gym cannot hurt me. So ego. Yeah. Yeah. The second one was uh, heuristics and those are mental shortcuts. And we use heuristics in our daily life and they can be helpful, but they can also be dangerous. And the heuristic that I was operating with was these two kind of tie in hand in hand, but it was outside is dangerous, inside is safe. So like when I climbed outside, I would compulsively check knots and, you know, I make checklists and I was really taking it seriously and bringing a lot of respect to the outdoor environment. Um, And I, I should have done that with the indoor environment because, you know, 50 feet is 50 feet, whether there's a roof over your head or not. Uh, let's see, what was the next one I'm doing off, off the top of my head here? Oh, you're, doing, you're doing great. So I have inattention as the next one. Yeah, that one, I was uh, studying for a paramedic recertification exam in between my climbing routes. And I've always been good about leaving my phone in my locker. And that's a pretty obvious distraction that, you know, you would want to avoid when climbing. But I was in between each route, I would study a couple of test questions. And I think it probably just led to my head not being quite in the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one, I think, is a deviation from a routine. This is probably the probably the crux or kind of single most um, relevant mistake. But I would typically always climb around, descend, unclip and then walk away and take a five or 10 minute break and then reapproach the wall, 
clip in and climb. And I know from surveillance video, a closed circuit video at the gym, that when I fell, I clipped in, climbed up, descended, unclipped, and it was going to be my last climb of the day. So instead of unclipping and walking away and taking a break, I just unclipped and stayed right at the base of the wall and then immediately started climbing. I'm six foot four, so the little fabric gate that covers the bottom couple holds uh, is not even in my line of sight if I'm standing right next to it. Yeah. And so by deviating from my normal routine, I kind of circumvented the visual cues that normally say you're not clipped in. I think that was probably the single biggest one. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, just kind of like varying from sort of, if you have a system or a habit or whatever, yeah. and then you vary from it, like you kind of have to be careful. Yeah. I, I can yeah. understand that. And then uh, redundancy was another one that that's just a pitfall of the auto belay. There is no inherent redundancy in that system in terms of, of double checks. So, you know, when you're belaying a partner, you're always double checking each other's figure of eight and system. And um, that's just the deal with the auto belay is that's not you, you can install that redundancy by double checking yourself. But I right. did not do that. Right. Uh, and then focus or tunnel vision, that one, I couldn't believe that I had climbed all the way to the top of that thing without noticing that the rope wasn't retracting with me, uh, that I'd actually walked like was climbing right past the static line. And that for me was the hardest thing to get my head around. But I, I realized in hindsight that when you are climbing, particularly at a gym, because the holds are color coded, mm -hmm. If you're climbing at something that's kind of at the top of your ability level, which I was, it's you're say if I'm on a blue route, that is the only thing I see. It's the blue route. Yeah. And those color coded uh, holes really draw your attention. So everything else just kind of fades away, and all you, which that's what you're trying to do is be really focused, you know. So it's kind of the flip side of the inattention, but it's it's almost like not seeing the forest for the trees. I'll just I'll recap. So you said hubris heuristics or mental shortcuts, uh, inattention or distraction, deviation from a system, um, redundancy in the safety mechanisms and processes and, um, focus or, or focus meaning like being so focused on yeah. what you're doing that you're not focused on yeah. the, the systems around you. If you kind of summarize all those in a couple of words, it would be complacency. Mm. Um, and, you know, like when I first started going to the gym, I was new to it and I was pretty paranoid about the auto belay. And so I would actually climb up like two holds every time I, every time I climbed, I would go up a couple holds and then jump off and make sure that my system was working. But you do that, you know, a couple hundred times and eventually you become kind of jaded to the risk. It starts to feel really safe. So. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting because as I was listening to episode 35 yesterday, again, a lot of what we talked about was flow state, but we also talked about sort of this mental um, like risk management process that you have in the white, in the water of like mm -hmm. these questions that you ask yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, I guess I was curious, like from the, the standpoint of like, the, you know, flow state is when you're kind of in the zone and you're so dialed in that you're just, you're not even thinking. And I, I guess I'm curious, like you were locked into your route that you were going up. Like, would you call that a flow state that you were in? 
Yeah, I don't. I'm not really a good enough or experienced climber to achieve that. But but yeah, I I was certainly you know the only thing I was seeing was that blue hold. So I wouldn't say that I wasn't having any thoughts probably. But yeah, I guess that's what maybe what I was trying to get to. Yeah, and the difference maybe being like you just said, you're not that. um, You're as a climber, it's a different level than in the whitewater. Like the whitewater, it takes years to kind of hone that achieve that i'm sure the expert climbers are you know frequently in that kind of flow state yeah yeah well again i I mean i really these are great lessons i mean i think like once again just like with our last episode you're providing this stuff that's like it's relevant not just to what you experienced at a climbing gym like these are life lessons you know these, these six lessons that you brought back and i'm so grateful for you sharing them um because i think it's going to help a lot of people um, so I appreciate that very much. So Adam, like the fall was almost nine months ago. Um, what's, what's, what's different now and how's the recovery been going since, you know, those initial couple of weeks? Well, I, I far exceeded the expectation in terms of the recovery. I, I, there was no nursing home. I ended up two weeks in a hospital and then discharged uh, inpatient rehab. I went there for about five days and then I was discharged home. So about three weeks total, um, kind of convalesced at home. Like I said, in a basement, I couldn't get up the stairs. So we have a finished basement. Luckily it's ground level stuck down there for, I don't know, another couple, couple months, I guess. And, um, you know, I just started doing the, the work of rehab while I was still in the hospital bed and through a lot of trials and tribulations and hard work and support from physical therapy and occupational therapy, um, started to kind of get my strength back started out with just like i said getting out of the hospital bed into a recliner and then eventually standing up on one foot because i only had one weight bearing extremity so i had both both arms and a platform walker which is like a walker with cradles for your arms at the top because i couldn't grip anything yeah Uh, so like the first time i got out of bed i lasted less than five seconds before i fell back to the bed um, it was by far the most humbling moment of my life. And, you know, I wasn't sure it seemed like maybe I would be going to a nursing home. That was probably like, I don't know, that was early, you know, I was still in a hospital, but you know, five seconds turned into 10 seconds, turned into a minute. And, you know, when I got home in, in the basement, I was standing on one foot for a couple hours a day, you know, eventually Yeah. started out with just kind of range of motion. PT, like getting the joints mobile again and kind of trying to work the stiffness out, but I would do like arm circles and leg lifts in bed. And it was very, you know, painstaking process, but eventually I guess maybe, maybe like mid or early February, I was cleared for some light exercise. So I started going to the Y and working on the pool, doing like uh, exercise bike and stationary bike and things like that. Um, all just non-weight bearing stuff. So, you know, two, three months in, where was your head in terms of like the atom that exists for paddling? I got in a kayak two months and a day after I fell, which was pretty, I mean, it was, it was quite an experience just getting, you know, my friend had to come get me, load my boat. I couldn't do anything for myself. I was still on crutches, had a back brace on and 
cool thing was I got in a boat and we really didn't know how it would go. Like he brought a, a tow tether with him to tow me back to shore if it didn't work out. It was just flat water, you know, it was uh, moving water, but no white water or anything. And I got in the boat and felt by far the best I'd felt, you know, since I had fallen it, it like everything was kind of working, you know, it wasn't perfect for sure. It was pretty painful, but I was able to paddle probably like, I don't know, half a mile or a mile just immediately. Uh, so it was, it was really hope inspiring that, you know, things were going to kind of work out. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. So two, two months in a day, you show up in crutches and a yeah. back race and you're in a kayak paddling. Like, did you ever think that, that you would be doing that after, you know, after falling 45 feet from a climb? No, I mean, it was pretty unclear. Uh, there was certainly the thought that paddling might be over forever. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. Not so. Not, not the case. Yeah. Not so. So I think you said four months after the accident, you entered a race. Was that right? Was it four months? Yeah, four months of the day. You know. Yeah. Tell us about this race that you entered four months after your accident. Uh, the race is on the Nolichucky River and it's class three to easy class four. I had been rehabbing on the Noli because it's, easy access you can drive right to the, the put-in spot and drive right to the takeout so there's no walking involved in the whitewater it's easy enough that i wasn't concerned about getting injured out there so i kind of been going there once a week and rehabbing with some friends and there's rates coming up that i've won a couple times in the past and typically done well in and I kind of thought about doing it but it didn't really seem like a great idea and then right before the race, I realized it was going to be four months to the day since I'd fallen. I was like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just do it. And if I get last place, who cares? You know, just be out there just to, just to, for the milestone of the four months. And then I got out there and I was just feeling really good. And like one, it was pretty crazy. Uh, I was just charging, charging hard for nine miles and about an hour and somehow, yeah, one. It's amazing. I mean, four months to the day after a 45 foot fall, you go out just thinking, I just want to finish and I'm yeah. okay with last place and you win the race. Yeah. I mean, what did that like, seriously, fi finishing that race, like winning that race that, I mean, what did that feel like? Well, I was in tears, you know, at the takeout, I was bawling like a baby. It was really emotional. I felt like kind of the end of a chapter, you know, yeah. felt like I was going to really come back. It was, it was cool. I had a bunch of good friends that have been helping me through the whole process of, of rehab and logistics at the home front and everything for the last several months were there. And so it was pretty special. I mean, and there's been, there's been so much since that, but I just feel like from the Stikine to this, this epic high of the Stikine to this fall, and then four months later to like, to win a race, like, I mean, just it's that is resilience. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I guess I'd like to add to, you know, none of that happened in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. It was not all me. There was, like I said, I had just incredible support from my family and my wife. I think the whole experience was, you know, harder for her than it was for me in a lot of ways because she's trying to work full time, take care of two kids, now take care of me. I usually do all of our transportation for the family and kind of take care of stuff on the home front. And um, she, the burden of all that went to her. So between her and, you know, my many 
care providers and friends in the community. Um, I would not, that race wouldn't have happened and I would probably, you know, I'd probably still be laid up if it wasn't for all the help we had. Well, and so that's a good point. I mean, we never do it anything alone, right? And again, just coming back to the fact that you are a paramedic and a, a trauma nurse, you know, what was it like for you to receive help? Like, no, I mean, you've been helping people your whole life. Like, what was it like to receive help? Well, initially there was no choice. I couldn't even get a water bottle to my lips. So I had, you know, with the four broken extremities, there was just, it was just, there was no other option. Um, so it wasn't really that big a deal. And then the only time I, or I guess the, the main time I struggled with it was when my wife wanted to get some help around the house and hire somebody to come kind of sit with me. And, and I was a jackass and refused to do that. Um, I felt like I was kind of at a point where I didn't really need the help, but I wasn't seeing that it was more, you know, for her. So of all the whole experience, the, you know, kind of biggest regret was just yeah, not, not allowing help for her to. It's hard. It's a hard yeah. thing for all of us to do. Yeah. What, what's as, as you continue to recover and get stronger, what's, what's next for you? Well, uh, bedside nursing is going to be difficult to impossible. I, of all my injuries, the kind of most long-term significant injury is the, the ankle. The right mm -hmm. ankle was completely obliterated. It's called a pilon fracture and it's just a really nasty fracture with long-term sequelae. So not sure about nursing. I'm still working for the hospital, doing some office stuff and they've been super generous about keeping me busy and I'm still teaching. I teach paramedic students at the hospital. So I'm still doing that, but that also involves quite a bit of walking. So I'm mm -hmm. still using crutches. Um, it looks like I had an orthopedic appointment yesterday. That was kind of my sign off ortho appointment. And it seems that the ankle is probably done all the healing it's going to do. And I'm not going to get any more range of motion or better pain management out of it. So, um, being referred to a specialist, which would involve, you know, they would probably suggest either some kind of fusion or ankle replacement, I'm not super interested in more surgeries. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, but when I got back from Stikine, I had already been talking to a friend who owns a kayaking school at the Nolichucky in Irwin, Tennessee. The school's called Noli, Nolichucky Outdoor Learning Institute. And Scott's a really good friend of mine. He was really instrumental in my recovery. But prior to uh, me falling, we had been talking about me coming to do some kayak instruction because I wanted to give back to the kayaking community. I feel like yes. I got a lot out of it. Absolutely. It seemed like teaching would be a cool way to do that. Um, I'm 44. And so I kind of realized like the Stikina is probably going to be the, the apex. You know, probably I'm not going to do anything harder than that, even, even barring any injury. Um, so... That was the plan was to start doing some kayak teaching in 2023 kind of part-time and then when i fell it just looked like that was going to be impossible so we kind of put it on the back burner but then i had this you know semi-miraculous uh healing trajectory and so i was able to take the kayak instructor's course in may and i've been teaching kayaking all summer and the plan is to to keep continue to do that so i'm teaching you know, I'll teach any level of paddler from beginner and never having been in a kayak on up, but I'm really trying to focus on kind of 
intermediate to expert paddlers in terms of like people who want to, you know, maybe elevate their game a little bit, doing some race coaching this fall. And I hope to get a personal trainer certificate of some sort this winter, you know, some sort of credential for that and do kind of focus more on coaching. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really, it's a great story. I mean, you know, it's a lifetime story. Like again, episode 35, you exist to paddle. And so you've lived this like epic life and done all of these like really intense uh, rivers and whitewater. And now you get to, to pass it on and, and share it with other people. Um, I mean, I think that's, that's how it should be. I, I think that's pretty awesome. And, and I'll just ask you now, if, if people want to get some instruction from Adam Herzog, what's the best way for them to do that? We have a website. I'm on there. Uh, you can just uh, send Scott. If you if people are, you know, we've got scheduled group lessons and then yeah. as well as private instruction. So if people are interested in private instruction, there's, uh, you can just message Scott and he'll set it up. We'll figure out a date. Uh, and I've also got group lessons scheduled throughout the fall as well. MullyLearn.org. Yeah. MullyLearn.org. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. We'll make sure that's on the, the show notes. Yeah. We'd love to see you. Awesome. Adam, the, um, you shared those six mistakes that you made and, and shared them in such a way that people can learn from it. Super helpful um, for anybody that goes to a climbing gym, but again, just life lessons. I'm curious, like what other, what other um, advice or lessons would you hope that people would take from this episode today? I guess, you know, the big thing was just that in life, there's really nothing more important than your kids that really <laughs> made that very <laughs> apparent. Um, you know, you can, I've done a lot of things for myself and it sometimes seems like it may be a little selfish to be out there with kids or be out there alone, you know, doing, doing dangerous things when you have kids. Um, yeah. and it may be a little selfish. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was probably the, the biggest single lesson uh, that, and, and that, uh, you know, there is no safe, I, I think, that idea of like the climbing gym is safe or, you know, I'll hear people say things like paddling class four is safe, uh, or, you know, mountain biking's safer than road biking or whatever. There, there just is no safe. Every time you leave your house, you're exposing yourself to some form of risk. And I think that's, I think it's fine to take big risk as long as you got eyes wide open and, you know, this, idea of being able to completely mitigate risk and just because you're good at something means that you can do it safely it's just a uh it's kind of a false narrative to me now um it's cognitive dissonance basically yeah um, so i think risk is fine to assume but know that you're assuming it right yeah now. so i'm curious just to kind of extend on that you've got kids and uh so as a dad uh what are the lessons that you want to instill in your kids with regard specifically to risk-taking? I think it's just that it's just, you know, know what, know what's at stake and don't fool yourself into thinking, I think particularly in, in whitewater kayaking, there's a lot of victim blaming that goes on and I've been guilty of it for years. And it's a, it's kind of a coping mechanism. Like, well, this person died or got hurt because they made this and that mistake. And I won't do that because I'm so much better. Well, 100% vigilance is impossible to maintain. And so, you know, it's, I think it's, it's, as I said, it's fine to take risk, but understand that, you know, you're not perfect and you're human and you're going to make mistakes. If you make the wrong mistake at the right time, at the wrong time, then, you know, 
bad things are going to happen. But there's also risk in playing video games and sitting on the couch and, you know, there's risk to everything. And I think sometimes, you know, maybe it's, maybe the risk is a little more black and white or a little more apparent if you're doing some, you know, our kids, we have fostered in them a lifestyle of extreme sports. So we're skiing, we're biking, we're kayaking, we're rafting, um, we're doing football. We just, and I, I think that's okay. Um, I would much rather foster that than, than foster a sedentary lifestyle, but mm -hmm. I do worry about my kids too. You know, you got kids starting high school. It's like, I know for me as a teenager growing up, the kayak probably, I was a pretty rowdy, wild young man. And I think the kayak probably tempered some of that to some degree. Um, so there's certainly risk to, you know, go into a party where there's drinking involved and then getting in a car and whatever. Um, you know, I see that all the time in my job. So it's, those are complicated issues. And I don't think there's a completely straightforward answer to them. Yeah, that's great wisdom from somebody who has experienced a lot uh, in the risk-taking world. So uh, Adam, when we spoke in episode 35, I asked you the question that I ask everybody, and that is when Hollywood makes a movie about you, who's going to play you? You said Anthony Edwards. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to stick with that. I just uh, <laughs> used to, all the time people used to tell me I looked just like them, especially when I was wearing scrubs in a hospital from oh, the yeah. show ER. Yeah. I love it. So when they make the sequel, Anthony Edwards is going to stick around. So the first yeah. movie was called Whiteout. What's the sequel going to be called? It's going to be called uh, Dream and a Nightmare. Mm. A Dream and a Nightmare. Wow, yeah. that's great. Starring Anthony Edwards. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it so much. We have got, uh, we'll make sure to share the um, the kayaking school show notes. If, if people want to get in touch with you, is that the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah. And I've also got a Facebook and Instagram account as well. Um, I, I sent you the links for those. So um, you can send me a message through either of those apps, um, but I have good availability this fall. If anyone's looking for kayak lessons, hit me up. That's sure. awesome. Well, I really appreciate uh, your time today. I appreciate your humility and you sharing the wisdom of this experience. I know it's been devastating for you, but man, you are a resilient person. Well, thank uh, you. It's incredibly that. inspiring. And for those listening, I hope you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope Adam's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or just need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thanks for listening, Adam. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you.